Business right now is anything but usual. At Square, we can help you sell in more ways. Whether you run a beauty salon, barbershop or nail bar, you can set up a free website and take payments online or by digital invoices. We can help you take contactless payments in person too and you'll get your money the next business day with no long-term commitments so you're ready for whatever's next. See everything we can do at square.com slash UK. Square Up Europe Limited is regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Now, typically on the podcast, we either explore new research in the journal or we get to know our editors a bit better. But today, we're going to do something a little bit different, as I'm joined by Professor Daniel Blumstein to discuss his new popular science book, The Nature of Fear, Survival Lessons from the Wild. We'll explore the themes of his book, discuss what fear means in an evolutionary context, and hear about the personal motivations and experiences that have led Dan to delve into the mysteries of fear, and, importantly, what he's learnt about wisely living with this primordial emotion. And for those of you out there who've always had an itch to write a popular science book, stick around to the end to hear how Dan made that a reality. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. First of all, can you please just tell everybody listening who you are? Thanks for having me. My name is Dan Blumstein. I'm a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology, and I'm also in the Institute of Environment and Sustainability at UCLA. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here to talk about your new book, The Nature of Fear. But before we get on to that, because we are a research podcast, I thought it might be quite nice if we could find out more about you and your life as a scientist. So what kind of work do you do and what kind of questions really drive you as a researcher? The stuff that really excites me is bringing different fields together. So I'm trained as a behavioral ecologist and a conservation biologist, and I've always been interested in integrating uh, insights from animal behavior into conservation biology, which for you know most academics it sort of is obvious that there probably are some insights from behavior for conservation, but for whatever reasons, these haven't really been properly integrated. And in the process of doing this, I've always been a big fan of the field of evolutionary medicine. I've sort of looked at evolutionary medicine and thought, you know, why isn't evolution being put into medicine? This is such a no-brainer. These are great ideas ever since the first quarterly review of biology paper, you know, that Randy Neese and George Williams wrote years ago. How come this isn't clicking? And the idea that it takes a while to integrate ideas and new ideas to become acceptable has sort of inspired me. I've worked in the field of Darwinian security, where we've tried to create and bring in insights from ecology, evolution, and behavior into security and defense. And I'm now actively involved in evolutionary medicine as well, co-directing our evolutionary medicine program at UCLA. Mm, fantastic. Well, it sounds fascinating. And that sort of interdisciplinary nature of your research really shines through in your new book, which is titled The Nature of Fear, Survival Lessons from the Wild. And I have it in front of me. There is a rather impressive cobra on the cover, which is currently staring me down. And I wonder if you could just tell us what this book is about. Well, it's a popular science book, and I use the lens of anti-predator behavior to understand how animals make decisions. I have spent a lot of time studying anti-predator behavior in lots of different species. You might say that I have an inordinate fondness for marmots. I've studied eight <laughs> of the 15 species of marmots around the world, but I, I study lots of species. And I, I've done so for over 35 years. And I look at the various ways organisms avoid getting killed by predators and make decisions about this and the effects that predators have on their behavior, their morphology, and the ecological communities they live in. But I use this as a way of understanding us. I use this to create insights into why we make decisions the way we do and maybe to help us come to terms with our fear because 
fear is okay. Fear is a natural behavior. We are here because of the successes of our fearful ancestors. But I think what's really interesting there is you're talking about fear in lots of different animals and what it can tell us about sort of human nature. And I wonder how you are thinking of fear in this book. How is it that you're defining it? Because there might be some people listening who are thinking of it in terms of a very human emotion. Yeah, you know, um, it's funny because there are people, experts in the field, who say that fear is uniquely a human emotion. Yet of all the emotions, fear seems to be one of the most primordial emotions. You know, humans might be jealous. Clearly, um, we might have schadenfreude. We probably don't share that with other species. But fear is something that kept our ancestors alive. And I don't just mean our hominem ancestors. I mean our ancestors going all the way back. All animals face some risk of predation at some point in their lives. And those animals that get their risk assessments right survive and leave descendants. And when I say risk assessments, I mean that you can't just hide in your burrow your whole life. You'll starve to death. So animals have to trade off risk and reward. And those that get it right, those that don't overinvest in anti-predator behavior, those that aren't excessively afraid, but those that can manage their risk, on average, leave the most descendants. So if you begin drilling down in a very proximate sense, I mean, the same parts of the brain, the same neurochemicals have been used for millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, to prepare animals for escaping threats, often predatory threats. So fear is one of those things that binds us to our past in ways that maybe some other emotions don't in the same way. Mm. No, it's very interesting. And I don't think that anybody could really argue with that. It's a very good case. And I'm kind of wondering where this book came from. What motivated you to write this as a popular science book and who it is that you're hoping to reach with it? Well, um, I want it to be accessible and educational. I, I, I feel somewhat compelled to share my knowledge of science with the public. And I do various outreach things in those domains, including writing popular articles and op-eds and things like that. But importantly, I think that if we understand why we have fear and some of the biases that may exist out there, we probably can make better decisions. I see us making poor decisions in some cases, listening to politicians, for example, that promise us, if only we do this, we will ensure safety and security. You can't ensure safety and security. Life is trade-offs. You cannot eliminate risk. The only way to eliminate risk is to completely shut yourself off, bury yourself in a burrow or underground, and you're going to starve to death. You're going to lose out on so many other things. So wise politicians acknowledge that there are threats out there and that we you know, need to manage these threats. But unfortunately, we have a highly focused, highly tuned system that overreacts to these threats that maybe advertisers and politicians are, are sending us. So at some really deep level, maybe by understanding how and why we respond to threats, how we share these responses with other animals, how other animals that are existing on Earth today are mostly getting their assessments right, we can up our game. We can improve how we respond to these as well. So I, I want this to be an educational book. I mean, it goes around the world and looks at animals all over the world. I want to share my excitement of biodiversity and all the cool things that animals do. I mean, I was intentional in highlighting research I did with students, undergraduates. In many cases, I teach a field biology course at UCLA and we go all over the place and, and study things to sort of show and model that anyone can do science. Anyone can be a scientist. You just have to have good questions that you focus. And I also refer to people by their first names, including you know, more professional colleagues. 
reviewers said, well, that's not very respectful. And I'm like, this was intentional. I'm trying to demystify science. I'm trying to make this something that younger people can look up to and say, hey, I can see myself in that role. We need a diversity of scientists in our field. And the way we're going to do that is not by intimidating people out of science, but rather by <laughs> inspiring them and encouraging them. And I hope that for some readers, this will be inspirational and hopefully encourage them. Yeah, definitely. I think it very much comes through in your book. And another bit that I quite like as well is that it's obviously very accessible because that's how you've written it, but you don't shy away from using scientific language as and where it's needed. You just explain it very, very well. Thank you. That was uh, something I really struggled with. And I had some great editors and you know colleagues reading various versions of it. And you know the, the tension is you know complexify more. And I was trying to sort of unpack and not simplify too much, but to try to unpack and explain these ideas. It's probably still too complex for some people. It's probably too simplistic for others. But thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah, no, I do. I do like it. I liked some bits where you like throw out phrases like Bayesian thinking. And I guess without giving too many spoilers, I wonder what the sort of main themes and messages you're trying to explore in this book are. So if someone's deciding to read your book, what can they expect when they pick it up? Well, I talk about how risk is assessed neurochemically and then launch into chapters that really look at the sound and the sight and the smell of fear. What sorts of stimuli scare animals? What sorts of anti-predator responses they may have to them? I talk about anti-predator communication and interspecific communication. I talk about conservation relevance of some of these topics and the fact that fear alone can change the structure of communities and fear alone can influence reproductive success. And then I talk about people and how we make decisions in various ways. And some of these are unique to people and others are not necessarily unique to people and are shared with our long history of ancestors. One of those, for example, might be the idea of risk compensation. The idea that when we make things safer, we actually don't really reduce mortality associated with things. You know, I'm a skier, um, everyone's skiing with helmets now. We have skis, as I like to say, take 10 years off your legs because they turn easily. So people ski faster and still hit trees and die. Even though skiing and bindings and the equipment is much, much, much better, the rate of mortality has not decreased. Same thing was found when anti-lock brakes were introduced to cars. Taxi drivers were driving faster and weren't reducing the number of accidents they were getting into. But we see this sort of risk compensation in animals. They might be exposed to some risk, but compensate for it in an other way. And you know, maybe they're not really reducing risk. Maybe they're compensating for it. Maybe they are reducing risk. But I think compensation is a rich theme that we see throughout the diversity of life. And the book celebrates the diversity of life. These days, I mean, I spend a lot of time studying marmots, but some of my favorite organisms are giant clams, because you can study any predator behavior in sessile marine invertebrates really easily. And you can follow individuals because they sit there and they take it from you. So on field biology courses, students and I study sessile marine invertebrates, which are good fun. And we're learning a lot from them. Perfect. Um, yeah, I can't imagine that I would necessarily think of giant clams as my go-to anti-predator study system, but I can I can see the logic. So beautiful. I mean, giant clams photosynthesize. I mean, so it's an animal that photosynthesizes. How cool is that? So immediately, there's all of this state dependence. There's all of this really interesting stuff going on. And their anti-predator behavior is closing down. They pull their mantle in, they close their shell. And when they do so, they can't photosynthesize, they can't filter feed. So they're getting hungry. So you can ask all sorts of questions about you know, what influences, how long they stay closed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, really good system for thinking about state dependence. 
one thing that I really like in the book, and you've kind of also displayed it here, is just how personal the stories you tell are. You're kind of bringing in lots of your experiences from your own life and your own career, which both seem to have been quite adventurous. You mentioned lots of your colleagues, lots of your students. And I kind of wonder if there are any particular examples that kind of spring to mind of sort of a personal story that has really influenced your thinking of fear or has pushed you down this research route. I'm going to say there's two. There's a longer one and a rather short one. One of them is I used to get paid to bicycle around the world. That's how I discovered the marmot population I studied in Pakistan for my dissertation research. But I was biking with an old friend and we were trying to go around the Himalaya and Karakoram, but the Chinese wouldn't let us in as independent travelers. Oh, well. But we were in India and we were in Corbett National Park, which is one of the tiger reserves. This is years and years ago. And it's hot. It's pre-monsoon India. And there's just tall vegetation and there's elephants and there's you know, other sorts of cool animals, including tigers, of course. And we're going around trying to see tigers and we're seeing footprints and we're seeing kills, but we're not seeing tigers. And one hot day we climbed up into this tower and we're sitting in the shade of this tower, looking down at this river and we hear a peacock screaming. It's like, wow, you know, that's interesting. What's going on with that? And then we see these, these monkeys come to the side of the river, look back in fear and leap out of the trees into the river and swim across it huh, monkeys, why are they swimming across the river? That's pretty exciting. What's going on with that? And then we see this huge tiger come out. <laughs> and I mean, it's really hot, like 120 degrees, and, and sort of lay down in this river and cool off. And what I saw there was interspecific alarm communication, something that's fascinated me throughout my career. When we think about biodiversity, you know, we often think about single species, or maybe we think about ecological networks. But there are fear networks and information networks all around us. Animals are warning other animals. And this is sort of underappreciated in many ways and is a topic of study by a number of people right now. But understanding the role of other species in one's risk assessment, I think, is fascinating. It's a rich topic, something I discuss a bit in the book, and something that inspires or makes suggestions for maybe how we make decisions as humans. So our security and defense is not simply left to us, but we can benefit from others. We can benefit from other countries. We can form collaborations. Different species mob predators. Species of Amazonian birds live in mixed species flocks and have rich alarm communication networks. And I think we can bioprospect the diversity of behavior and gain insights that might be useful for us as well. After all, these are time-tested insights. If they're working for many other species, well, maybe we should try some of these things. And maybe we do. Maybe we don't intentionally. Maybe we have learned from other species unintentionally, but we can also intentionally go out. And much as we're bioprospecting for making better hull design by looking at the shape of fish or trying to make biomimetic shark skin suits and swim faster, we can similarly look for successful anti-predator behaviors. And maybe this can inform our security and defense and improve our security and defense. Mm, that is an incredibly impressive story. <laughs> the other story is, 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 is kind of funny because it, it goes on every week. And that is we drive down and, and sometimes uh, regularly these days uh, go surfing around Venice and go to the beach around Venice in California and Los Angeles. And we go across a, a street called Beethoven Street. And years ago, there was a, a red light camera there. And my wife was with her parents one day driving down there, showing them where we would go. And the red light camera went off and she was terrified of having the ticket come in the mail. Well, the ticket never came, but this must've been like 15 years ago by now. And like every time we go through Beethoven street, she's like, look out for the red light camera. 
And, you know, we've driven through 30, 40 other red light cameras to get there, right? You know, and suddenly it's this red light camera and only this red light camera that, that she pays attention to. So that form of learning, that form of experience is something shared by many species as well. Um, things like this can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder in humans. Things like this can lead to very profound lessons that animals have. These can be used potentially to discourage animals from certain places in a conservation behavior context, or is something we want to avoid if we're trying to allow animals to coexist with us in various places. Mm, no, for sure. And while many people might not be able to relate to the tiger story, I'm pretty sure a lot of people listening, myself included, will be able to relate to the uh, driving story. And it's a location specific. It's one trial. And it's something that, you know, it's, it's a very location specific message that has lasted. Yeah, definitely. Business right now is anything but usual. At Square, we can help you sell in more ways. Whether you run a beauty salon, barbershop or nail bar, you can set up a free website and take payments online or by digital invoices. We can help you take contactless payments in person too and you'll get your money the next business day with no long-term commitments so you're ready for whatever's next. See everything we can do at square.com slash UK. Square Up Europe Limited is regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. So your last chapter is titled Wisely Living with Fear. And I guess a lot of the stuff you've talked about so far kind of comes down to this idea. And one thing in it that I really like is that you talk a little bit about a disconnect between maybe the fear responses we evolve with and the sort of cultural situation we find ourselves in now. So I wonder what you think we can learn from a better understanding of fear and how do we wisely live with it? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, clearly we're living in a time of great mismatch. Paul Ehrlich and I wrote an article called The Great Mismatch. But I mean, other many people have recognized that we are evolved to respond to certain sorts of stimulation. And now we get very different sorts of stimulation. Social media is a giant sucking sound as far as I can tell. You know, get off social media. Uh, we are very sensitive to having messages pointed at us and particularly fearful messages. We respond to this. Well, it, it works. I mean, I talk about the Daisy advertisement that Johnson used in the presidential election where he has a little child sweetly pulling petals off a daisy and counting down from 10. And then it sort of segues into this thermonuclear explosion. And the point is that only Johnson can keep us safe. And he won by a landslide. Um, politicians on both sides of the aisle in the U.S. and other places capitalize on fear of others or capitalize on fear of this or that to um, get elected. And it often works, but they're tapping into things that if we were just to sort of pause and, and, and reflect upon, we would realize that, you know, in the U.S. at least, most immigrants aren't crossing the border to form sleeper cells to take us down or, you know, kill or rape citizens or steal all of our money and jobs. I mean, refugees are coming for security and safety from horrific conditions. Sure, some people are uh, engaged in illegal things, but most people aren't. And we have to sort of use all evidence and slow our thinking down and not have reflexive responses to these sorts of things, which we're primed to do. We're primed to respond quickly to fearful situations. But ultimately, we make the best decisions by sort of slowing down the decision making in many cases 
and reflecting on what's the true risk of something. And the more we can assess that true risk, the more we can learn from our experience, the more Bayesian we can be, the more uh, intentionally Bayesian we can be. I think the better decisions we're going to make as individuals and also as societies. Mm, that that does sound like some very good advice. And yeah, you kind of expand upon it quite a lot in that final chapter. And I think it's very thought provoking and and definitely worth reading. And I guess because we're coming near the end, and as we are a part of the genetic society here at Heredity, which is a community of researchers, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the experience of writing a book like this. I'm just curious as to what it was like, and if you have any advice for anybody listening who might have that itch to write a popular science book themselves. So I write quickly, and I kind of knew what I wanted to write in this one, but I didn't really know how to market it properly. So I've written popular stuff before, and I've written books that I intended to be popular books before, and they were not marketed that way. For this one, I actually was trying to get an agent, because... If you get an agent, then maybe you can make the proper trade you know, market. This is published by Harvard University Press. I bumped into an editor there who really got it and really helped me improve it. And I'm extremely grateful for the, all the support they've given me. But I wasn't able to get an agent who really saw a vision of this being sold by a popular press. I don't know why, my failing, but if you could get an agent, you have to write a book proposal. And... I talked to a number of agents, and at some point I realized I, I sort of took a sabbatical and I, I worked on the proposal and I started writing a bunch of chapters, and then I started shopping around the proposal. And then I you know, talked to a bunch of people, and then I said, you know, I really need to write the whole book before I can write the proper proposal. So <laughs> I took another sabbatical, and I finished the book, and then I sort of rewrote the proposal and continued talking to agents. And they sort of decided it was a bit too academic-y for you know, better or for worse or whatever. It just is what it is. I'm like, okay, fine. So I then went to two presses that basically have really good trade parts. And that's that's Princeton and Harvard. And, and I went to Princeton because I uh, was talking to someone there anyway. And then I went to Harvard and my editor there got it in one and saw how I could improve it. And we worked on the proposal quite a bit. And then when the proposal was accepted, she gave me lots of advice for rewriting sections and cutting and expanding and, and, and developing things. So there's a lot of rewriting. I mean, again, I find if I know what I want to say, I can write it. So each of these chapters required me to sit down and read a bunch of stuff and think about how I wanted to put it out. But I could write first drafts pretty quickly. But there was a lot of rewriting. You know, I took a sabbatical quarter, I guess, four years ago, and then another one two years ago. It's taken a while for the thing to come out. So I think when you write a book, unless you're very lucky, don't expect it to be published next year. Academic presses also send it out for review by academics. So, you know, the academics came back with comments. One of them, you know, was, well, you know, um, this seems very anthropomorphic in various ways. <laughs> so I had to write a whole bunch of stuff about anthropodenial, which is a, a, an idea that people have suggested that, you know, you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So I think that fear, if anything, is one of these things that really does link us to our past. And I think we can make a strong case for that emotion being a common emotion that many species have. I'm not asserting that all of all species feel it the same way or imagine it the same way, but we've evolved to respond reflexively in certain ways. And there are rules that are shared among many, many species. So I like writing. I like the process of working with a, a really good editor and, and copy editors and improving what I put together. 
Mm, fantastic. It's really interesting to hear the process you went through there. And it's really nice to hear about the really valuable role of editors who often go a bit unseen. And it's also really interesting to hear about the effectively peer review that it went through. I don't think many people will really be aware of that. And I wonder if you just want to take a chance here as we're coming to the end to just kind of give us your best reason for listeners to push this up to the top of their reading list and also let them know when and where they can get their hands on a copy. Um, I mean, I, th- I think if you're interested in the diversity of life and the diversity of anti-predator behavior, and if you're ultimately at some level interested in why we are who we are, I think fear is an emotion that binds us to our evolutionary past and learning from the diversity of ways that other species assess and manage risk and make decisions in threatening environments may inspire us. I think that fear is a natural emotion that we have, and risk is something we just have to live with. And I'm inspired by doing risky and fear-inducing things, and I think fear makes us humans. And if you're interested in any of these topics, this is a book to buy. Uh, you can get it directly from Harvard. You can buy it on Amazon or other electronic booksellers. should be available pretty much anywhere in the world these days. Um, it just came out in the U.S. and is being launched elsewhere very shortly. Perfect. And I can fully endorse it because it has been a great privilege getting to have an advanced copy of it and getting to read your book uh, kind of before a lot of the general public do. It, it makes me feel very special. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and having you here to discuss fear and your new book. And thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you for your kind words. Thanks for having the chat. This has been great. And uh, hopefully some people will go out and read it and happy to talk with you guys about it as well. Thanks to Dan Blumstein. His book is out now in the US and will be hitting UK bookshelves on the 25th of September. Also, thanks to Ellie Andrew at Harvard University Press for all her effort behind the scenes in helping to arrange this interview. And if you're a regular listener or contributor to Heredity with a new project coming out in the fields of genetics and evolution, like a book, drop us a line and we'll see about getting you on the podcast so you can tell us all about it. Just email me at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. And as per usual, let's end by checking in with Dr. Kat Arney over at the Genetics Unzipped podcast. In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we're getting organised and making babies, at least in a strictly scientific sense. We're going back to the very beginning, telling the stories of the midwives of the field of developmental genetics, two talented researchers whose work helped to reveal the secrets of life in its very earliest stages, Hilda Mangold and Salome Glucksenwalsch. The tale of developmental genetics is a thrilling one, with everything you need for a good story. There's politics, drama, upheaval, prejudice, and even a suspicious death. So, hold on tight, this is a good one. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You heard Kat, it's a good one, so please make sure you give it a listen. But that's us for today. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on all good podcast platforms, and you can follow us on Twitter, at Heredity Journal. And, as I said, if you want to get in touch with me directly, you can drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. I'm Charlotte Hawkins, and my new classical podcast, Last Past and Blast, is out now. Join me as I chat to special guests, including Alexander Armstrong. It was the <laughs> most exciting thing I have ever, ever, ever heard. Mylene Class. Music's the first thing that you turn to for anything. And many more. 
Last Past and Blast, the podcast. Listen now.